Welcome to Wallachia. Previously in Flowers of Transylvania, the Princess of Springtime had been taken. I think you'll have to stay here for now, but, said Dominic, I know how we can see each other. As soon as she turned the corner, she found herself looking into Dominic's eyes as he beckoned her inside. That night, Corina had a bad dream. She dreamt she'd awoken in a sweat, but then the room had grown cold as a mist flowed through the window, surrounding her bed and enveloping her. Just promise me. Promise you'll find a way out. You have to escape from Castle Dracula. Chapter 4. Into the Labyrinth. Whatever Corina had led herself to believe about her new life, that she was a guest in the Count's castle, that he, unseen all this time, really did want to educate and elevate them, that her parents had accepted her absence, that the other girls were her friends, that all of it had meant she got to be with Dominic, whatever level of comfort Corina had allowed herself to accept, shattered. Dominic was terrified, and she didn't know why. She was a prisoner. She was alone. She had hardly slept when the maid came to dress her the next morning. She ate, though not hungry, just to maybe not let on that something was wrong. On their morning walk, she couldn't bring herself to look at Dominic's candelabra. She felt as empty as it would be. Passing along the walkway above her village, she stopped and looked down, wondering if there might be someone down there who would help her. Could she write a note and throw it down? Who would get it? Though the wing of the castle she and her friends lived in was occupied only by them and the maids, she did often see villagers coming and going, and Romani traders conducting business. Indeed, activity in and out of the castle had seemed to increase over past weeks. Tea time the next day brought the answer. Ladies, said Elisabetta, the townspeople have invited us, and the Count has agreed, to attend their summer's end festival this week, on Saturday. Oh, will there be games? asked Irina. An animal rides? asked Freya. I'm sure there will be, but today we return to Milton. She went on to a discussion of free will, how God said he'd made man just and right sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. But Corina was too distracted by the prospect of getting into the village to focus on it. Would she have a chance to break away from the group? Could she escape or hide? The next day, Corina sat in Irina's room. They were supposed to be discussing Paradise Lost, but kept getting off track. Irina had snuck some pastries from the tray earlier and, though in truth they had whatever decadent food they wanted at nearly every meal, they relished the stolen treats as if they were an act of defiance that would, if discovered, see them chained to Milton's lake of fire. All this focus on free will and disobedience, Irina said, trying to stay on task. It just feels like it's saying bad things only happen because you make bad choices. But bad things just happen to people sometimes, even if it's not their fault. It happens to them. Well, he's talking about sin. The victim isn't the one to blame. The sinner is the one who makes the choice, said Karina, though she wanted to add something about how none of them had chosen to come to this place, how it was the Count's choice to bring them there. Would Irina be receptive to talking about it? Throughout all spring and summer, Corina had never summoned the courage to probe how the other girls felt about their time in the castle. It was understood the topic was off-limits. What did they think of their rarely-seen benefactor, or their matron, Elisabetta? The constant presence of the guards had been enough to tell her to be careful. Dominic's fear of being caught had convinced her this was right. That's what Elisabetta was saying about what Christianity brought to people, said Corina. The Greek gods would put temptation in front of men, then blame them for falling for it. Jesus said that we all sin, and that God forgives us and loves us for it. Irina seemed to be about done with theology. Did your village have a summer's end festival, she asked. No, a little later we'll, they'll have the harvest festival. Corina summoned the courage to broach the subject of leaving. Maybe Irina would understand how important getting home was if she knew her village needed their princess. She started, I was, oh, we have one of those, said Irina, interrupting her. We have a big hedge maze, and at the festival the bigger kids get to pretend to be Omrin and scare the little kids as they run around. 
These wild men were one of many Transylvanian superstitions about crazed men who lived in the forest and attacked hunters and shepherds. One of the boys gets picked to be a giant. They scare everyone and then make them solve riddles. No, it's a giant. He's this wild huntsman who wanders the forests and gives advice or sometimes quests to hunters. Irina hadn't gotten the reference. It didn't matter. I'm supposed to be there, Corina said. Where? The Harvest Festival? I'm supposed to be the princess. I had a gown and... I wonder what they'll do without me. I'm sure they're fine. And hey, after a while, you'll go back there and get to teach everyone what we've learned. You don't need to be a princess. Plato had philosopher kings, right? Well, you'll... you'll be the philosopher queen. Do you ever think maybe we could try... Before Karina could finish her sentence, a sentence that would have risked exposing her impending escape attempt, Elizabeth's form appeared at the door. Bedtime. The morning of the Summer's End Festival proceeded as normal, accepting the lack of their typical morning walk. After the midday meal, Elisabetta explained that they'd have the afternoon to enjoy the festival, with time for dancing, and gave them each a few silver Reichsdaler coins so they could play games or buy trinkets in the village. Her dress for the day was a much fancier version of the typical costume that would be worn in the village, several skirts, with white Katrinta aprons, front and back, embroidered in fine detail with golden thread. On her head, she wore a high cylindrical velvet hat called a Wharton, with a veil covering the back of her neck, which was embroidered with the same golden thread. Tucking the coins into her apron's pocket, she joined the girls as they walked down to the gate. Two castle guards were assigned to be their chaperones for the day, and they made their way out of the castle for the first time since the start of spring and her captivity. Walking down the rocky path to the town below, Corina tried to capture as much of the geography as she could. If she was able to make her escape today, she'd need to work out where she was going to go. There seemed to be just one road leading out of town. It ran behind a hill after a span, but its general direction implied it probably met up with the road from the castle's front gates. She'd be discovered instantly if she took it. Dense forest covered the mountains that surrounded the village. Corina had heard enough wolf calls from her room's window to know that's where they lived. She could just make out a small stream snaking its way across the land. If it led to a river, perhaps Corina could follow it to another settlement where she could seek help. With the castle guards following the girls everywhere, escape was going to be difficult. So Corina resolved to enjoy, or pretend to enjoy, the festival while trying where possible to effect her exit. The festival was in substance not dissimilar from those of her own experience, but in scale much larger. They were led, first, to the village's central square, where the dancing and later feast would take place. In front of the Zarda, the village's inn and tavern, several women had set up tables displaying all manner of scarves, dresses, and jewelry. Oh, Karina, what do you think? asked Diana, holding up a series of beaded pieces. The work really was very nice. Do you... Corina started to suggest that perhaps Diana didn't need to buy clothes since the Count provided them with their wardrobe, all of it certainly more expensive than what was on display here. She stopped herself, thinking that if it made Diana happy to have something of her own, so be it. It's wonderful. Within minutes, Diana had spent the entire allowance she'd been given. Oh, but what will I do with all this now? Perhaps our strong young escort would take it back to the castle for you? Corina smiled at their appointed guard. Arena and Freya were across the square with the other. If she could get rid of one guard for an hour or so, ditching the remaining one might be easier. I'd be happy to have them sent up for you, said the seller, taking Diana's purchases and placing them to the side. You go, enjoy the day. Don't worry about these. My son will deliver them. She turned and yelled at full volume to a gangly adolescent whose look instantly told Karina that there were four dozen things he'd rather be doing at the festival than running errands for his mother. They moved on. At another booth, an older lady seemed quite taken with their order of the Dragon Guard and insisted they each take as many of the small honey cakes she was selling as they wanted. Corina said she wasn't hungry, but the lady insisted and offered to wrap them in cloth for later. 
She took them and stowed them in her apron. If she did manage to escape, at least she'd have something to eat. Or something for the buzzards to eat after the wolves ate her. For now, Corina would have to find a way to enjoy the day until her chance came along. She and Freya developed a rivalry at a game trying to sink balls into a hole. Irina turned out to be stunningly good at throwing darts at a portrait of a dragon that had been painted on a board. Diana was simply rubbish at a game involving throwing rings under the turrets of a replica castle Dracula. Everywhere they went, the villagers fawned over them. It's so wonderful to see the good Count bring in people from all over Transylvania. The Count is such a strong figure. You're so fortunate to get to live in the castle with him. I wouldn't say this to just anyone, but never mind the Habsburgs, the Count is who I follow. And so on. Whatever Dominic wouldn't say about the Count, whatever terrible thing he was afraid to disclose, the townsfolk loved him. Their chaperones got nearly as much attention as the ladies did. Corina knew the members of the Order of the Dragon spent at least some time in the village. She'd seen them coming from the gate herself, but the villagers seemed to be honored by their presence at every turn. The men admired their austere uniforms. The women swooned over them. A small boy asked if he could one day join in their ranks. The sun started to get lower in the sky, and Irina suggested they return to the square so they could eat. I can't wait for the dancing, said Freya. The music will have started by now. I haven't danced with a boy in ages. Her step turned into a skip, then a twirl. Corina smiled at the little dance, then stopped in her tracks. Irina, look, she said. They'd wandered to the edge of the village. There, before her, was the answer, the opportunity she'd been waiting for all day. A hedge maze, said Irina. Oh, let's go. You don't mind, do you, Freya, if we're a little late to eat? A man sat on a bale of hay next to the maze's start. He was handing out some sort of treat to a group of children who'd just come out of the maze. Welcome, ladies, and thank you for coming. But I urge you to return to the village for the feast, for you see, this maze is haunted. Restless spirits have taken up residence here. Oh no, said Freya. Oh no, indeed. Perhaps, perhaps you can help me, and help them. Them? asked Diana. The Strigoi. You see, they are all in the thrall of Panouche, who, I must add, particularly likes to lie in wait for helpless maidens. The farmer put on a disturbing grin. Corina knew all about Panouche, or, as he was known elsewhere, Pan. It was Pan whom Psyche came upon in the forest after she'd accidentally pricked herself on Cupid's arrow. Seeing that she was mad with the need to find Cupid, Pan led her to the temple of the Earth Mother, who gave her the tasks she'd need to complete to win back her lost lover. The farmer continued, In the center of this labyrinth you'll find its Mama Padura. This forest mother loves to help lost children. Throughout the maze you might find small boxes containing these. He held up a wooden coin. Find all ten and deposit the coins in the box at the center of the maze, and the great fairy will use her magic to free the spirits from the monster. How long will, Freya said, but Corina stepped in. Don't worry, we'll get to the feast in time. We can split up. We'll each take a different path, then meet in the middle with the coins we found. If we don't find all ten, we can backtrack together. It'll be faster that way, and maybe scarier. She stretched her hands out like claws and lunged at Diana, who shrieked and jumped back. It wasn't possible to tell whether she was actually scared or just doing a good job pretending. The four left their guards outside the entrance to the maze and moved inside. The first fort came almost immediately. Irina and Diana went left, Corina and Freya right. They found their first box around the next bend with a two carved onto its face. Inside was a round wooden coin with a triangular hole cut into its center. I hope the other girls found one then, said Freya. Corina took the coin from the box and handed it to her. The path led a short way, took a turn, then passed under a bridge. One more bend and they were faced with another fork. Well, best of luck, I'll see you at the center, said Freya. Kissing one another, they separated. Immediately, Corina tried to work out where she was in the maze. She'd need to find her way to an exterior wall, 
Then hopefully she'd be able to climb over, or squeeze through the hedges and walk out. It was starting to grow dark. That was good, at least. She'd be harder to spot once she was out in the open. The maze took several turns, but most of them were inward. She found box four, taking the coin, before realizing that, if her plan worked, her friends wouldn't be able to complete the puzzle. How long would they wait before going to find her in the maze? How long before they realized she was gone? Would the guards spend time searching the maze, or would they figure out she'd fled? The coin had a star-shaped hole in the middle. She pressed it to her lips, looked to the stars, and said a brief prayer asking for guidance, then returned the coin to his box. Whether the Mama Padora liked helping the lost or not, she'd need the stars to find her way. A few more turns, and Corina realized she must be at the maze's outer edge. The path arced to the left, just before she saw box five. The hedges were too thick for her to slip through, and she didn't have anything to cut her way out. Maybe, though, she could get over it. Carefully, grasping the hedge for support, she tried to climb onto the box. She fell as the leaves of the hedge tore apart. This is it. This is my shot, she thought. And on the second try, she was able to perch on the little box and get her elbows onto the top of the hedge. The branches caught on her dress and scratched her face, but she dug in her feet, scrambled over it, and allowed herself to fall with a soft thud onto the ground on the other side. Where am I, was her first thought. She could trace the edge of the maze to find her way, but needed to make sure she didn't find herself back at the entrance, and the guards waiting there. She hadn't noticed the maze when she surveyed the town on the walk down from the castle, but they'd gone over a hill earlier, so it must have been hidden behind that from her point of view. This side of the village was where all the farmland was, she knew that much. Beyond it was the mountains. If she went the right way, she'd find the water soon. If she hit the mountains, but not the water, she'd just need to turn left to get there. It was the best plan she had. Following the maze's wall, she became more confident at least that she was heading away from its entrance. She rounded a corner and suddenly found herself lying flat in her face. She tripped over something. Oi, there you are, said a voice. She looked up. The voice wasn't talking to her. She sat halfway up and saw a sheep standing by itself. It looked up at her, made a faint bleat, then went back to eating the hay it had been chewing on. A shepherd walked up. Been looking for you for ages. Seeing Corina, he said, Oh, you lost too? The feast is starting soon. Guessing you should be heading back that way. Corina expected him to extend a hand to help her up. When he didn't, she put her feet back under her, brushed off the hay, and found she had no idea what to say. You're one of them girls, aren't you? Girls was all Corina could put together. Was her escape going to be foiled by this shepherd, just as it had started? From the castle, one of the count's guests. Did you get lost? I can help you get back to the festival. No, no, I'm going back there now, thank you, said Corina. Taking stock, she started walking briskly toward the town's buildings. Maybe she could get behind a house, then turn and get out of sight of the shepherd and hide in the forest. Please, miss, I don't mind, he called. It's not safe to be out after dark. Corina started to run. She didn't look back to see if he was following. She ran, passing one house, then another, and came to a fence. On the other side lay the graveyard she'd seen all those months ago from the castle. Salvation, maybe. She lifted her skirts, climbed over the fence, and made her way through the graveyard to the church. The priest would help her. He'd arranged to conceal her in a wagon when he traveled to another village. Somewhere there would sneak her away and she'd be home. When she had seen the church from the castle, the graveyard had been to its left. Its large front door faced directly down the town's main road. Going in that way would mean she'd be visible to anyone looking up the street. She found one door along the church's side wall, but it was locked. She'd have to risk going around to the front and hope that most of the villagers would be at the feast, and that the dusk would hide her well enough for many that weren't. The other girls were probably only just wondering how lost she'd become in the maze. There shouldn't be anyone to see her. 
She hazarded a glance up at the castle. It seemed to be hanging above her, watching her. Was the Count there now, or Elisabetta somehow observing her from a tower? Slowly, Corina crept along the wall of the church. The grounds were much overgrown nearer the church, though the graveyard itself had been well cared for and in few places showed signs it had gained residence in the recent past. She rounded the corner and made her way up its stairs to the great doors. They were heavy, but one was slightly ajar. She moved it, and it opened, a loud creak resonating in the empty building. There didn't seem to be anyone around to notice. It was dark inside and musty. Right away, Corina moved to the side, so that if anyone had heard her and looked inside, they'd at least not find her walking down the central aisle. She put her hand on a pew to steady herself, then drew it back. It was coated in a thick layer of dust. She brushed it off on her apron and tried to make out the inside of the church. No candles were lit. Looking up, Corina noticed that the roof had broken, and above it she could see the stars faintly. She risked calling out weakly. Her voice echoed, but no response came. Somewhere a bird that had made its nest in the ceiling rustled, and several bats took flight, screeching as they flew off. Venturing farther into the chapel, Corina saw little evidence that had been used in some years. She found no signs of life in the sanctuary, nor in the rooms beyond. Continuing her search, Corina found two entrances to the vaults below. She summoned more courage and took one of the stairways down. It should have been pitch black, but unlike the church above, there were torches lit inside. She made her way past many tombs, finding at one place what seemed to be a long passageway running in the direction of the village. She was considering seeing where it led when she stopped dead, thinking she might have heard a sound from one of the tombs. Another set of decisions to make. Take the tunnel to wherever it might lead, slip back upstairs to the church, then proceed into the night and resume her plan to find a way to the river, investigate the source of the noise. There was no way to know if whoever was there would be friendly. There was no way to know where the tunnel-like passage led. Yet Corina let herself follow the sound, coming presently to a great tomb, more lordly than all the rest, huge and nobly proportioned. There was no way to know if whoever was there would be friendly. There was no way to know where the tunnel-like passage led. Yet Corina let herself follow the sound, coming presently to a great tomb, more lordly than all the rest, huge and nobly proportioned. A lantern had been set down in front of its entrance, likely recently, as it was still lit. She stood at the edge of the door so she could peer inside while exposing the least amount of herself. Inside, a great many candles had been lit and maintained, as if a number of faithful servants had dedicated themselves to ensuring this one tomb would never go unhonored. By the entrance along the inside had been mounted a torch, still glowing brightly. Corina could make out three figures. One bore the silhouette of a member of the Order of the Dragon. He stood to the side, at attention. Inside the sepulchre, the lid of the coffin had been moved aside slightly, but still remained mostly in place. The second figure lay prostrate atop it. The third stood over him, leaning down like a wolf over its prey. Corina knew that she should not be discovered here. She turned to flee, but in doing so knocked over the lantern. It clattered loudly. She turned to measure the reaction to the trio in the tomb, now fully placing herself in the doorway. There was no reason to hide any longer. Before any of the three started to react, Corina saw everything. The castle guard she recognized. She didn't know his name, but he was among the several she'd seen about the castle during her months-long captivity. The man standing over the coffin still hadn't raised his head, but she recognized the piercing red eyes as belonging to her host, Count Dracula. The final member of the group she now saw also wore the uniform of a castle guard, but his high-colored coat had been removed. Corina saw that Count Dracula's mouth had been on the man's neck. He was now raising his head. She saw a glimpse of sharp teeth like fangs in a pair of red marks on the other man's neck. 
The entire survey took but a second, but Karina felt as if she'd been watching it happen for a full day. Her eyes were seeing something that her mind didn't want to process. Slowly, because she had no power over her senses, no way to prevent the images from, eventually, being interpreted, she allowed herself to accept the identity of the man the Count had been attacking. It was Dominic. Darkness fell. Thank you for listening. Chapter 5, As the World Falls Down, will be out in two weeks. You can follow Wallachia on Twitter at WallachiaNet or on the web at Wallachia.net. If you'd like to read or listen ahead, you can download the Wallachia app from the App Store.